On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like the path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and I'm joined today by uh, retired firefighter EMT, Keith. Uh, Keith uses his voice now to be an advocate for first responders who may be affected by PTSD. Keith has been featured in three documentaries and is working on putting out a book that'll focus on how PTSD affected his life. Keith, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. It's uh, awesome to be here. Uh, I always enjoy sharing some of what's up in the head, as they say. Um, so yeah, I was I was a firefighter EMT out in Massachusetts for 21 years. Uh, I got in right after my 18th birthday. I was actually still a senior in high school when I got on the job as a on-call member. Uh, so 1996 to 2017, I worked and I worked municipal fire and EMS and I worked private EMS and some of the more um, inner city settings out in Massachusetts. And uh, I did that for 21 years and it was, it was a good career. Uh, obviously with what I do now with PTSD, you know, it did affect me in, in a lot of ways that I wasn't ready for when I got on the job. But these days I try to, you know, better prepare those who are either still on the job or thinking of getting the job by, you know, telling these stories and, and sharing some of the tools and resources that I've used uh, to get to my resiliency these days. So that's sort of, um, in a nutshell, what I, what I did, uh, there's a lot there. There's always, you know, you talk to anyone who's got more than five minutes on the job and they always have, you know, tons of stories. And, you know, that's always 
that's kind of what part of the job is, right? You know, it's comparing, comparing stories. Oh, you know, that's how we get that camaraderie is, oh, I've been there. Uh, I get that. I feel where you're coming from. And, um, you know, the story I was going to, I'm going to share today is, is one of those where I had sort of, it's, so it's my number two worst call I've ever done. I, I didn't realize the power it had on me until about a year ago, I reconnected with a gentleman that's doing a lot of what I do. He's sort of setting up a farm to be like a daytime retreat for, you know, veterans and first responders who have, you know, trauma related issues to try to get away for the day. And I was sitting in his room, in his dining room, eating a grilled cheese sandwich with him. And it hits me that I did my second worst call with this man. And so uh, this call is, is held a lot of power for about 18, over 18 years now. And um, it's a pretty, pretty crazy story. It was happened when I was working in the city of Lawrence, Mass. For those that don't know what Lawrence, Massachusetts is, it's a city of about, on the census, about 80,000 people. Those of us who've lived there and worked there know it's probably closer to 100,000, and it's only seven square miles. So very inner city. A lot of crime, a lot of violence. Uh, I did a lot of rapes, did a few murders there. Uh, a lot of domestics uh, working on the ambulance. I worked only the ambulance there doing 911. It's uh, it's funny because of my trauma. I think I remembered that some of the parts of this call differently for a very long time. I was convinced that this call happened in the middle of winter, and it wasn't until very recently I realized it happened on August twenty seventh, two thousand four. Um, I had memories of it snowing before we got to the building. That's not the case, and it's because of how traumatic the call ended up being for me. So it's August. It's the middle of the night. And we get sent to a high-rise uh, luxury apartment building in the downtown area. So a building we've been to numerous times, usually for like chest pain calls, you know, run-of-your-mill medical calls, nothing big, nothing ever bad, nothing that ever really sticks out. Uh, but we've been there numerous times before. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we don't have the fire department with us, and we have no police on this call, which is pretty normal for that city. I mean, you do... Emergency services in cities enough, you don't always have the other the other team with you. So it's my ambulance, me and my partner, and the medic unit from the hospital, um, a gentleman, Brian, and his partner. My partner's a female, his partner's a female. And this kind of plays into the story as we as we get going. And um, we we had been there quite a few times. Like I said, I would say on average, I would go there probably once every five to seven days for something. Uh, and that's just me. Very big building, seven stories, pool on the roof, really nice. Elevators in the center of the building, apartments lying the outside. So we go up. We're all like, uh, head pain. It's a head pain call. And we're like, this is, you know, bullshit. That's <laughs> why are we here at one in the morning for head pain? So we go upstairs, and we're just kind of, we're not really talking. It's the middle of the night. We get off the elevator, and we see someone kind of run. We get off the elevator, we walk out, and we look right, and we see someone round a corner. And we're like, oh, that's weird you know, whatever. So we walk that way. We're looking for an apartment number. And as we round the next corner, there's a female sticking out of an apartment door, uh, uh, Spanish descent being like trying to get us to come, come here. And so me and my partner, my partner was a uh, former, or well, the medic on the other truck was a former army ranger. And so with some of the training I had been through and obviously his training, we knew to kind of, our hackles kind of went up a little bit. And we're like, all right. So we kind of, me and him kind of get in front of each of the of our partners and we kind of go into a single file and we walk up to the apartment and there's some damage to the inner 
wall. So you open the apartment door and there's a wall immediately in front of you because there's a closet off to here and the other end opens into the uh, apartment or whatever. And we're like, something's up. And we immediately both smell gunpowder. We, we smell something that he knows, and I find this out later, is, is gunpowder. And I'm like, that's a smell of something that shouldn't be here. Um, so we tell our partners, Hey, get back here where our radios aren't working. We're trying to bet. We're trying to call for police. It's not working. And it's like, Oh, Oh shit. So, uh, he puts me in front. I'm a big guy. I'm six foot five. I was about two sixty at the time. He's a thinner guy, about six, two, uh, with his training, he gets behind me. Smart thing. We go in we clear the front part of the apartment. I go left. He goes right. And we start, we start clearing the rest of the, the apartment. Well, when I go left, I see a blood stain, a massive blood stain on the living room floor, and I'm like, "Oh, oh no! We just walked into something. This is a this is a live scene. There, there is potentially someone in there." So at that point, things are now at a, at a ten, and I look immediately, and there's drag marks going from that blood stain back towards a back bedroom. And we both end up, me and Brian, end up converging on this bedroom at the same time. And we walk in to clear the corners and clear the closet. And there's a body uh, that is uh, duct taped, hands behind his back, legs behind his back, uh, duct taped around the face, single GSW to the forehead, about a 45 caliber. Uh, Massive trauma on the exit wound. And it was obviously execution. So now we're, we're like, it hits us. You know, he has an oxygen tank, you know, we're, we're, we're EMTs and medics. We don't, we don't have guns. We don't have, I mean, we, we all carried a knife, but we don't have any weapons and it's just us. And as far as we know, there is no backup coming. There is no cops coming. We, we have, they've been notified because the 911 in that city comes through the police department, but we're currently sitting in a crime scene, a very live crime scene that. As far as we know, the person who committed this act is potentially still in the building. And, you know, it's funny looking back on that situation right then and there when we're standing looking at this body where we haven't told our partners yet what's going on. It hadn't hit us what the danger was. It hadn't the potential of someone coming back up to that apartment to finish the job of the person who let us in because, you know, witnesses was so high, but we, we weren't registering it. And then, you know, we, you know, eventually the cops show up, we tell, we walk out, we tell our partners and we, you know, sort of secure the area. And we're all now like, you know, our heads are on a swivel. It was about an hour after that call that we're all sitting there giving our, you know, statements. Cause now we're part of the investigation. We're first on scene. Our footsteps, our handprints, our everything are, are in that apartment. So we're now part of the investigation. They were both sitting on this bench in the lobby of this apartment building, or, you know, me and Brian, because we're the key initial witnesses to the scene. And it hits us that all four of us had a potential of, of, of being victims ourselves. And as EMS, you never think that. Fire, you never think that. Cops is always that mentality that, hey, I'm going to go into a situation and I'm there to bring safety. I'm there to mitigate a situation as an EMT or a medic or a firefighter, you're there to, to literally only help. And unfortunately with cops, a lot of times they get, they get viewed as a threat by some people. We don't typically do that, but in that situation, 
we had the potential of being harmed ourselves in a really serious way, which, you know, I had been in situations before that were violent, but this was like, this was the real deal. And for me at that point in 2004, I had only been, I mean, it's a significant length of time, but I only been on the job for eight years. I had only been working up in that sort of system for a little over two. And it was that call that really put it in my mind how dangerous this job can be. To hear it, to then fast forward. So now we fast forward to 2021, where I, I reconnect with Brian, again, who is an Army Ranger, who has seen some combat, uh, who, is, who is a little older than me. I've been doing this job about 35 years now. To hear his interpretation of the story and to hear him continue to put an emphasis on how dangerous that situation was, it really, it hits home. And I didn't realize for years because it was one of the, one of the calls I had never really worked on or talked about, you know, over the years of dealing with, you know, my traumas and, and, and healing, I had never dealt with it. And you would think I would. Number two worst call, you, you think I deal with this shit. I never had. And eating grilled cheese on a, on a farmhouse in New Hampshire, here I am talking to the, one of the guys that I did this call with, not knowing that I was going to this guy's house because, you know, over the years you, you forget and you forget, maybe forget names and, and, you know, people move on. And here I am reliving and healing essentially uh, from this call. But that really, um, that call really in a good way, in a good way, it really, it really changed the way I approach scenes. And it, it changed the way I allowed my partners that I worked with, who were maybe a little bit more naive at that point, how they approach scenes. Uh, because it became very obvious at that point that, you know, we weren't just showing up and saving the day. Yeah, there was always that real chance from that day on. There was always that chance that we were going to show up and, and have a gun put in our chest or, 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 or whatever. Maybe it wouldn't even involve a gun. Maybe it, maybe it would involve getting in an accident on the way to a call. The danger aspect of the job really became evident that day. And uh, I was very young. You know, it's interesting that you say that and you, you talk about entering a scene and being there simply to provide care. And I was, I was, I wanted to make sure I got the name right. But just earlier this week, FDNY EMS Lieutenant Allison Russo Elling was murdered. She was stabbed to death on the scene while providing care to someone. And she was attacked. It sounds like she was attacked from off to the side or from behind. She never saw her coming. But I would imagine that in her mind, she was there helping somebody that needed aid. And out of nowhere, in the blink of an eye, her life is taken from her. You know, and we've all been in those situations where we walk into something not expecting it to be what the dispatch information said it was. I mean, you went to basically a headache and ended up with a murder. You know, I remember being at a uh, when I worked in New York City, I went to a call for a uh, I think it was I think it came over as a leg injury or a sick or something. And when we walked down the stairs, there was a kid holding a shotgun and he had blown his buddy's leg off. And now I'm trying to get back up the stairs and my partner's not down the stairs yet. She didn't see what was going on. And I'm, you know, I'm 20 something years old at that point. I'm panicking trying to get up the stairs. So you're right. There's a, there's a different mindset entering these calls. And and I don't think we're fully prepared for it uh, most of the time. And then when we get into it, it's kind of like, oh crap, what do we do now? You're right. And you know, it wasn't, it wasn't very long after that call that I actually did. I did another call that wasn't, it was different. It was a call where we got sent for a female patient who was having a you know chest pain and ended up being she ended up having a heart attack and we show up to deal with her and her grandson again Lawrence Massachusetts very it was very Hispanic uh, town 
a lot of a lot of gang members there, a lot of a lot of violence. And we go to deal with her, and I go out to get our medications to start taking a list of her medications. And I'm greeted by a 38 revolver, and her grandson, who thinks that I'm there because I'm at this point we're wearing blue uniforms. So what do we look like? You look like the police. You look like the you know the popo, and you know he was scared. You know, and not that I'm justifying anything on this gentleman's behalf, but he was scared. He thought something was going to happen. And he so he took his gun out and he pointed at me. And here I am just trying to get grandma's meds. And again, here's a situation within a year of this other one happening where it's like, we're just here to render care. We're here to help people. And there is really a chance that something could go really sideways out of left field that you're not expecting. And I think... That's a great point with the FDNY lieutenant that just literally happened a couple of days ago. It's you, you don't know. And these days society, I feel is just at a boiling point and that first responders every time, every time they walk out that door or hop in that truck or that cruiser or whatever it is, you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen because what could be leg pain could be a gentleman waiting for you with a shotgun or what could be head pain could be a body with a single GSW to the forehead. You don't know. No, and that's a great point. And so one of the conversations, and I'm curious to see what your take on this is, a conversation that's been floating around EMS for years now is should EMS, should EMTs and paramedics carry a weapon while on the job? And I'm cur- I know what my opinion is, but I'm curious what your opinion is on that, especially since the you know you were in at least two of these situations. So my opinion is if there is adequate training provided, much to the extent that police officers have to go for carrying a sidearm, uh, I would be in agreement to that with certain jurisdictions. My biggest thing is I think EMTs especially should be carrying body armor. I think they ought to be going uh, carrying vests. They should have a vest at least available to them on their unit at all times. Whether they wear it is on them. However, when it comes to carrying a sidearm and, and some sort of firearm protection, as long as the training would be adequate, academy level training for firearm training and you know keeping up the that that training as years go on i would support it especially in some of these jurisdictions um but it would have to go through the proper channels and the training is the big thing you know a lot of people think that you just pick up a gun and you're good to go you got to have some discipline you can't just be you know wired up you know going through and blasting caps it's it's there's a lot of responsibility with that. And so I feel training would be the biggest thing. And if they did the training correctly, yeah, I, th- I think to a certain extent, certain jurisdictions should carry. So I'm going to, I'm going to take the, the opposite point because I disagree with you. And here's why I disagree with you. And you tell me what you think. So you said earlier, and I agreed that we are there to render aid. And I think once you put a firearm on a uh, EMT or paramedic, you fundamentally change their role, at least in, at least to the perception of whoever they're interacting with. So let's go back to your call. You're taking down the medication and that kid comes out with a gun and he points it at you and he sees that gun on your side. Does that interaction change because now you're more of a threat because you're carrying a, you know, openly carrying a weapon or do does he, you know, does he uh, maybe get scared or react differently because you're carrying that weapon? I would, I would lean towards the side that that, that situation escalates because of the weapon that's on your side. But that's my personal opinion on it. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in, EMS and fire for, you know, 20 plus years and never felt like I needed a weapon. 
Um, but certainly have been in my share of situations where I had to fight my way out of it, especially when I was in New York City. Uh, but I always felt that uh, having a weapon probably would have made that situation worse rather than mitigate it or uh, you know, even help me get out of it. I think I was able to talk my way out of things or even fight my way out of things because I didn't have that weapon on me. It changed the dynamic of the situation. But again, that's my viewpoint and you are welcome to yours. And, you know, we could probably debate this with hundreds of other people for, for months, if not years. But I was just curious what your thought were, what your thoughts were since you found yourself in, in this situation. And I, and I think you have a very valid point. It does. It, it shifts that dynamic. Like I said, there is, I think there would be a place for it, um, but it does. We, we are caregivers, and there is a reason why I strongly feel that law enforcement should always carry because they are there uh, to bring safety. And sometimes in order to bring safety, you have to have uh, a stronger means of implementing it. But I 100% agree that you know that, that does shift our, our role. And we go from care providers, even, even as firefighters, we go from care providers to, to safety. That's not what we're there for. Um, so it's, it's a great viewpoint, hundred percent. And I'm not sure, you know, you, you can't go back and change history. I don't know what, if I had been carrying, I don't know what it would have done for, uh, the situation in that woman's kitchen that day, you know, who knows, maybe he would have saw it and never done anything, or maybe I wouldn't have had a chance to even get to the kitchen. Maybe we both would have gotten blasted walking in the apartment, you know, who knows? Definitely something we can debate for hours, oh, yeah. but let's jump back. Let's talk about some of the work you're doing now. Cause it sounds like you're doing some really great work for first responders. So, um, we've got a little time left. Why don't you talk about some of that work? And, uh, when this is complete, I'll get that information from you and I'll make sure that we post it in our, in our show notes. So anybody listening to this podcast can find these resources and get in touch. Yeah. So in 2015, when I got diagnosed, I immediately started advocating for PTSD on like social media type platforms. Uh, trying to make sure that people know they weren't alone, that it's okay to be, you know, get affected by the job and try to help remove some of that stigma. And I immediately started journaling, which shortly became, pretty quickly became a book, uh, which got too massive. And now I'm in the editing phases of it at like 600 pages. And I, it, it's funny because I didn't do a lot of writing in school. I was always someone who used cliff notes to get through book reports and, and skip through college on whatever I had to do. But now I have this massive book that I'm going through and editing that's like my story, my life and how, you know, I survived having, you know, PTSD with the massive amount of traumas that I have both personally and professionally um, to try to give some people hope and, and maybe even a game plan for their own life. So that's where I'm at with that. And in the last little bit, the last uh, year or so, uh, I, I really started getting into public speaking and, you know, I did a few around New Hampshire and then uh, I just recently did another one in mass, but this fall is just like filled up with them. So like I'm all over the country now talking about this stuff. I do podcasts all the time. Uh, this past March, uh, over the winter, 21 into 22, I was able to convince a couple of Hollywood producers that we need to do more for first responders uh, with PTSD. They, they actually bought into it. I don't, I don't know how I convinced them, but they, you know, how Hollywood can be. And, uh, we ended up making a feature-length uh, documentary. It's not out yet. We're in post-production. Uh, they have their own way. They're trying to go about this in the indie film way. Uh, but that's that was the first one we sort of filmed that that centered around my life. But we interviewed sixteen other people from my life who were also first responders, in military, or spouses, and we made this really awesome, powerful documentary. It gives insight for not just the first responders but society uh, as to what we go through on the job. 
and then right after that, I got asked to be part of another one uh, with director Doug Haynes, uh, which is called Residual. And then I got asked to be part of one with a gentleman by uh, Clint. I think his last name is it's a French looking name. I think it's like Dubois, du, something like that. But his is um, Beyond the Lights, Our Stories. And he actually travels the country in a van. It's kind of funny because it looks like, a, you know, one of those kitty candy vans in a way. And he's going to hate me for saying that, but it was true. Sorry, Clint. The, um, but we did a great interview there for, you know, again, PTSD. Uh, I've been working with Daniel Deffenbo through the 1042 Project. Uh, he's doing like a resource video library for first responders. So I was able to do one through him. And then uh, for the past eight months or so, I've been the director of promotions for first responder coaching, uh, which is a first responder specific coaching business, life coaching business which focuses on the proactive approach to the first responder lifestyle. Instead of waiting until we, we're in crisis, this is sort of like that. How do you navigate the lifestyle? So maybe we have our ducks in a row. So when the shit hits the fan, we're a little bit more prepared, both in our personal lives and on the job. And it's a great way to make uh, leadership skills and listening skills and all that. Uh, so I do a lot. And uh, in the last month, I actually got asked to write a chapter for an ongoing national book series called Scars to Stars which is great. I, I've kind of found my thing where I love to write and, you know, to be asked to write a chapter in a, in a, in a national best-selling book series is, is an honor and it, and it humbles you. Uh, so I got that going. Um, just a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stakes in the fire uh, going on and it's, it's kept me busy and it, and it feels good because when I left the job, I really kind of lost my identity for a while and I felt like I wasn't able to help people. And, Lately, especially, I've sort of gotten some of that back where I'm giving back to the community that I love so much. Uh, you know, these men and women who, you know, selflessly go out every day and, and sacrifice so much. Uh, I'm able to help them. And, and that really gives me some purpose every day. Uh, and so it's been really great. It's been a great journey. And I just I just love sharing my story with people to give them hope. Well, I'm glad you were able to come on the podcast and, and share your story with our listeners. I know they'll appreciate hearing it. Uh, like I said, I will put out all of your information so that anybody listening to this podcast will be able to get in touch and find the resources that you're working on and, and the people that you're working on those resources with. Uh, as we close this out, anything you want to add? Uh, the biggest thing is just, uh, you know, talk about it. You know, one of the biggest stigmas in the job is that we're supposed to just suck this up. And, uh, you know, I always tell people it doesn't take away being a, being the tough guy, the tough ga- gal to talk about how this job affects you is it's worth doing if you want to have longevity and um so just talk about it. it's okay to be affected by this we're human beings <laughs> well keith thanks again for being on the podcast thanks for sharing your story and I, i'll look forward to maybe having you back at a later date share another story with us or even talk about uh, some of these projects as they're coming out you're always welcome to uh, to come on the podcast and share with us awesome thanks a lot fellas a blast if you enjoyed this podcast please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.